0: Uh, it's good.
1: Hey, Evan. I'm uh, just uh, wrapping up my Wednesday here. How about you? Um, I am trying to get a handle on my new life uh, at work. So <laughs> I re- have a full-time client plus all of our other duties. So, you know, it's it's refiguring out work-life balance. So
0: we probably should have a podcast episode on work-life balance at some point. Maybe we'll have to find an expert on that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, we should. Actually, I have somebody we might want to bring on. That would be a good one. Um, I will take a note for future episodes. Well, um, we have a guest joining us today to talk about technology in the mid-cycle. We do want to put out that today's episode is really just about our... Thoughts and opinions on it. It's not a representation of our organizations that we are working for and sponsoring, or um, and uh, any of our sponsors on the episode as well. So it's just our thoughts, opinions on things that are happening in the industry throughout today.
0: All right. Uh, well, should we should we go ahead and introduce our our first guest here? I think we should. All right. So uh, for today, just to give a little introduction. Um, special guest, one of our founding original founding members of the Wilshire Group. Uh, she's the L1 pillar leader of health information and revenue integrity at Cedar Sinai, uh, including its affiliates. Currently serving on the board of directors at the H.A.H.I.M.A. Uh, please welcome uh, Thea Campbell.
2: Thank you so much, Daniel and Evan, for having me today. And um, I think, Evan, your your topic of uh, uh, work and life balance might be far more interesting than some of the technicalities that we'll be talking about in terms of uh, the complexities within healthcare and specifically healthcare finance. So I, I'll stay tuned for that one. I think everybody else should as well.
1: Uh, we'll work on that one. Well, welcome, Thea. Thanks for agreeing to talk with us today. So we're going to jump right into our hot topics and our debate segment are going to kind of end up having a little bit of a blend in this episode. Um, Since coding and HIM continue to be a high resource demand area in healthcare and revenue cycle, Daniel and I would love to get your thoughts on how organizations can leverage technology in filling their resource gaps.
2: Absolutely. I mean, um, before COVID, uh, we were sort of in a in a financial uh, a precarious financial space in general in healthcare, and and COVID kind of bought us two and a half years of different a different amount of chaos. And so now we're sort of writing to that space of, oh, my gosh, now what do we do? Um, and the topic of the great resignation or whatever you want to call that, it's been called the reformation or the I don't know, it's been called a whole bunch of different things. Um, but what we're seeing is, you know, in, in a highly regulated space, healthcare being number two, nuclear power being number one. Th- that should tell you something right there. Um, you know, there is a demand for labor to be kind of navigating all of these complex reimbursement rules, and with the challenges that a lot of healthcare organizations are facing, everybody is wanting to get as much as they can, as much as they're entitled to, right? So in, in, a, in a compliant way. And so what we're seeing is kind of this great convergence of people retiring, right? So there's a a version of folks retiring. There are folks who, um, because of how uh, COVID reshaped um, how people work, where people work, um, there's demand for different people uh, that can live in different places. So there's a different competitive market. A lot of facilities aren't just competing in their local market for resources in the revenue cycle. They're having to kind of fight Across the entire country, and and in some cases across across the oceans, um, and so we're all being charged with getting more creative uh, to figure out how do we take some of the easier stuff that maybe a computer could do for us, um, and and assign that or leverage our technology and use the very 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 valuable labor live human resources in the very complex space. Um, And you see this in in several different ways. So right around uh, ICD-10, computer-assisted coding was very, very popular, right? So um, it's become a lot of the norm. And yet at the same time, there's a lot of optimization that needs to go on in that space. And then you see new technology coming into the market or I don't know if it's new technology, but you see more legacy systems trying to sort of get into that market as well and trying to say, How can we ease this throughput on some of these easier accounts that could be directly coded? Um, And then you, you kind of go back to sort of that artificial intelligence space of what was computer assisted coding. And you start to see the merging of different work streams and trying to create that kind of super stream. Right. So if you look at a traditional model of coding uh, within an organization, you have the hospital based coding services, and then you have the professional based coding services, and everybody's having to review the same documentation. And then just uh, very frequently assigning similar codes, maybe more on one side, more on another side, maybe a little more CPT code and a little more ICD 10 code, depending on where you're at. But they're essentially reviewing the same record for a lot of the same reasons. And so You've really seen the advent of what's called single path coding, where you're trying to bring those two things together. And that right, wrong, or indifferent also puts a challenge on our labor resources, because I kind of call those single path coders sort of the unicorn of the world. You know, they need to understand this complexity, they need to understand that complexity. And there's a huge amount of competition for the people who can span that space in an already kind of very, very hard Um, labor market. And so technology is really, you know, we've said it before, is kind of the holy grail. It's more than the holy grail. It's more uh, about the very existence of an organization. How can you get creative to say, I need to use my very, very valuable labor resources where they can make the most impact and leverage technology to do some of the things that aren't theoretically as complex?
1: Yeah, we're still seeing a lot, you know, from our perspective on the consulting side, we're seeing a lot of organizations still in that. Let's let's start to toy with single path, right? Like because they know that it's hard to implement. They know that you need those unicorn coders in the world. What advice do you have for them on even thinking about internally developing some of those unicorn coders or moving in the into that direction?
2: Um, I think there's there's part of the industry that we're still trying to get our arms around. And, and that has been that sort of that hospital-based coding and credentialing is sort of contained by one organization and professional-based coding is kind of contained by another. And there are complementary credentials, but they've they've kind of lived in their own markets. And so you'll see hospital-based coders specializing in hospital-based coding. You'll see professional-based coders in professional code in that professional space. And depending on your organization, those may be two very independent silos of work uh, managed by someone different. And and that can really cause sort of that conflict of, you know, what's the valuable resource there. There's always kind of been a battle over is an inpatient coder worth more than a professional based coder. Um, But as, as those come together, my advice would really be you need to ha- be having really that open dialogue about what are the opportunities for the staff that you have? You have really great staff. How do you turn them into those unicorn coders and how how wonderful it is for them to really have that level of expertise? Um, but it is hard. You know, you're having to look at somebody who's willing to really think about some of their processes that had always serve them very, very well. Coders are paid very, very well in both of those spaces. And now you're going to challenge me to do it a different way. Um and now there's kind of a new new set of rules that maybe a new set, a new person to report to, you know, is that going to go to the professional coding space? Is that going to go to the hospital space? Or gee, do you have a healthcare organization that's put those two things together under the same leadership? And they're really able to do that together. <laughs>
0: I know you alluded earlier to like, the staffing constraints and thinking that sometimes you have in-house and sometimes you outsource it. And sometimes it could be even overseas. When thinking about like, the right type of staff and the unicorn coder, what has been like, the most success for you? Have you found that folks that like, are hiring in-house and bringing in a team and managing that has been the best path to success there? Or are there opportunities for looking for outside help?
2: Um, You know, really, in my experience, it's, it really depends on what the organization's commitment is to that education, right? So to get coders to that place, yes, you're finding more and more of them in the market. You know, I remember five years ago, when we started talking about single path coding, people would scratch their heads and kind of look at me and say, you know, what is that? Now, at least even in a consulting space, we can go out to some of our contract vendors and say, hey, I need a coder that knows how to do single path. Right. So it, it very much like when we did computer assisted coding for a long time, you'd go out to your vendors and say, hey, I need somebody who has experience with computer assisted coding. And they'd be like, oh, we don't have those. Or yes, we have those. And now it's very commonplace. Um so, it really depends on what your organization's talent pool is what they're willing to what you're willing to invest in so some organizations have really great learning systems right so they have internal systems where they have invested in coding education and other things like that from niche vendors or you're blessed with having a really great coding education staff right you've been able to keep that in your budget and and be able to do that. And it really depends on what your own capacity is and what your own organization's focus is. There are some organizations who are very committed to that creation of those people because they are loyal. They stay with the organization for a long time. They're great tenure. And then there are some who say, "I, we just do not have the capacity to do this. We need to outsource this. We need to find those resources. I've been very fortunate in the spaces that I've worked in. We've been able to invest in those people and do a lot of that internally. And you really learn a ton about what the throughput is, what that thought process is, and what some of those challenges are, right? So, when you're trying to train somebody in that space, we've had instances where we've been training a professional, uh, an initially professional based coder, and an initially hospital based coder, training them into the same space right? So you have to train one, one direction and train one, the other direction. Um, And sometimes the challenges are very unique to whichever direction they're going, right? And, and how do you value accuracy on one side versus accuracy on the other side? Um, And sometimes there's really a dichotomy of, hey, do you want them to code better on the hospital side? Or do you want them to code better on the professional side? The right answer is yes, I want them to code correct on both (laughs) sides of that. Um, but a lot of the times the hospital-based coding is, is, I don't want to say more valuable, but more revenue. let's put it that way. You know, you do tend to get paid, uh, at a different rate than you do on the professional side, but it, it is very challenging. Um, and you really, it really has to be an organizational decision about what your tolerance is for doing that training. They don't happen overnight. You know, you can't, as most people know, you can't put a coder in front of a learning system and say, okay, you're going to learn for a week. And then, oh, by the way, you're going to start coding the next week. And we expect you to be perfect. It, 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 that development just doesn't work that way.
1: So so then expanding on that education component, right? Because it's really now saying, okay, we have the education, we're, we're continuing, and that's always going to be ever growing. Let's say you have single path and you put it in. Your primary service areas where you have that dual coverage, ED, surgery, et cetera. Now, where, from your vantage point, is kind of the next step in the industry, and what are you guys talking about at uh, Nam um, about it? In in talking through, like, at, from a coding national coding perspective, as leaders coming together, where where are you guys wanting to go with it?
2: Sure. So if you kind of tick off the easy stuff, right? So you have the process and sometimes it's called simple visit coding. Sometimes it's that simple diagnostic coding that, that a lot of folks are having success in automating. And then you have the consolidation of the single path um, that may be netting you some, some savings. And if you have the CAC um, up in, in the rest of the service line, those are all really great things. And now we're sort of being faced in in a different challenging space. And, and it's really around the social determinants of health. right? So everybody kind of kids about what is out there in terms of everybody wants to know, we all know that there are a lot of social pieces that impact your health, right? You can't afford your medication, you're not eating, you're homeless, you can't do your follow-up care, all of those challenges. And historically, until a couple of years ago, um, you know, those codes were there. When ICD-10 exploded, we ended up with a whole bunch of codes in that space. But I can tell you very few people uh, prioritize the Z code that you need for to denote your homeless over uh, a CC or an MCC code from a hospital-based space. That's changing. I mean, that's changed for a couple of different reasons, a couple of major initiatives that are out there in addition to COVID and wanting to be able to collect some of that public health data. And so we're now being forced with how do we capture a whole different code set of information that may not follow the traditional rules of what coding is now, which is a lot of provider-based documentation, right? And and that meaning the nurse practitioner, meaning the the, uh, PA, meaning the physician for the most part. And now you're having to look at more expansive documentation, sometimes from a social worker. They're the ones who pick up the fact that they don't, they haven't been getting their meds or the fact that we can't discharge them home because they have stairs and they don't have anybody who can take care of them. But capturing those additional codes is time. And, and as much as we want to say, hey, we want to capture all of these codes, there's limitations in the number of codes that you can submit on a bill, right? Yet, we have commercial payers. Uh, I think the government's getting into the space where they're saying these are important codes for us to determine how we're going to pay you for this service. And we're all jockeying for the same number of, of codes that can go on to a bill, right? And so people are trying to collect that data and we need to really balance that data and the value of that data with how are we going to pick that up? If you just look at a coder and say, oh, by the way, we want you to pick up all of these codes while you're at it without having some layer of supportive technology, whether that's computer assisted coding that can do that, whether it's, you know, different questionnaires within your legacy EMR system, you know, how are you going to pick up that information without slowing down coders to the point where you have to double your coding staff, you know, and and that that's a very counterintuitive piece of how do we get that information without completely blowing the labor market apart.
1: I think it also takes it there too, right? Then how does that impact our KPI requirements as well? So if I step back and think about build or guidance that we've done with coding and integration of revenue integrity and clinical documentation, creating smart phrases for around the end taps and having those trigger... It stops the account then for a coder to also touch where that account might have not had to touch a co- coding in the first place because it had everything else. But we want that additional code in creating those rules. But then it affects our KPI because it's not, quote unquote, clean from some of the vendors in the sense of it's stopped for human intervention. So it is really how are we going to, as an industry, put some time and money in this space to say... How do we start to leverage smart phrases, documentation to assist the coder in making that code and then having them really become also an auditor of did the system generate the right coding for them versus them having to manually select it?
2: Absolutely. And can those systems get more sophisticated to draw that information out to put in front of a coder, right? So with the computerization of records, the volumes of data that are created is huge, right? I mean, in the old days of paper, and I understand I'm probably the only one old enough on this call to remember when we used to have paper charts. Um, but, it, you know, it, it goes from being you know fairly concise. I have to read these three reports to Oh, my gosh! look at all these information all this information and some of those social determinants of health, which are becoming more and more important as we look at at research and and potential reimbursement space. Now I need to dig through all of these flow sheets. Now I need to dig through all of this nursing documentation. Now I need to dig through all of these other spaces. and how can we leverage the technology to serve that up so that you can see it or to capture it without our intervention? Would that be wonderful?
0: Would the idea there to capture without coding and for intervention be to put some of that that work on like the provider or on nursing staff? And or are you not thinking that way? Like, what does that what did that look like? Or do you have a, a vision for how that could be done?
2: Um, I think there are a couple of different ways, obviously, depending on your organizational tolerance for, you know, smart phrases and being able to fill in specific things in specific areas, or even patient driven questionnaires, can you draw that data out? Um, You know, that's, that's one way to do it. And maybe that's codified and you don't, you don't have to have somebody validate that because I, I picked that I'm, I have food insecurity um, and the other, the other piece is really just trying to have machine learning look into it and say, Hey, I can pick this up. Um, I can tell you in a, in a recent, well, not recent, probably a year and a half ago, when we did some research on, Hey, what social determinants of health are we picking up? We discovered very quickly that one of the things that we did pick up was homelessness simply because providers usually documented that in the first line of their note or of their dictation right? So it, it said very clearly, homeless. And so our CAC was picking that up, it was leaving it there, and, and coders weren't removing it, which is a good thing. Um, but some of the other verbiage is very, very different um, when you're trying to pick it up. And if you don't codify it into a field, then it's kind of all bets are off with what can your system learn and what where can
1: you point it to from a consistency perspective. Yeah, that new? Need- Anybody picking things up from the registration component as well? When you say like provider documenting homelessness, I think of, you know, patient registration saying, hey, patient presented from home or patient doesn't have a home when they're filling out those fields and those components. So just trying to get that um, understanding where where maybe you're leveraging the front end of the revenue cycle versus the provider themselves.
2: You know, in some instances, that would be a really great space to be able to pick it up. Um, I think people need to be comfortable in that space. And we're still kind of feeling our way along saying, Hey, does a clinician have to verify that? Does it have to be a social worker that verifies that? Um, You know, how do we train, whether it's our frontline staff or or even our clinical staff or our tangential uh, clinical staff, how do you have that conversation? Right? You know, so what am I going to, am I going to say, Hey, Daniel, do you have food insecurity? Did you not eat last night? depending on, you know, where you're at with sort of what you want to say, I, I don't know that you're going to get an honest answer, right? Um, and so there's a ton of training that needs to go into that in addition to how and where do we capture that data? And and what's going to, you know, how do we answer the patient when they say, what are you going to do with this? Why are you asking me about whether or not I ate last night?
0: Just to oh. add one one little quick thought on that. Like I've gone through how many countless hospital implementations. This is the first time that this question or topic has ever been like put in my mind to think about like, where can I codify things? Or where can I put information in a way that makes it easier on coding staff? Um, it makes you wonder, it makes you think a little bit about like where where could we plug this into like our implementation processes so that we get this at the start rather than having to pick up the pieces maybe a couple years down the road.
2: Well, it, you know, it- Systems are getting so much smarter with AI and natural language processing. Absolutely. That's an incredible technology. But, you know, in your implementation practice, you know, as well as I do, that if you can put it into a field and that field has predictability about what it's going to be, that's that's like winner winner chicken dinner. You know, it, it's, it's really that really important space for it to be. In, and I think we're going to hear more and more about it as there continue to be state and federal mandates about collecting that data and using that data for people to be able to find services.
1: All right, Thea, Daniel, any final thoughts before we take a break? All right, well, we will be right back.
0: Claim Capital is a team of ex-EPIC staff focused on preventing denials. Instead of showing what was denied, which is the standard for other solutions available today, Claim Capital pinpoints why claims are denied. By training machine learning models on an organization's claim and remittance data, Claim Capital can identify the causes of denials and recommend changes in EHR build or workflows to prevent them from happening in the future. With a completely HIPAA-compliant infrastructure, no software implementations, and a zero-risk pricing structure, organizations can quickly and safely recover lost revenue. And we're back. All right. So kick off the debate section or hot industry trends section. In this segment, if you listen uh, to our podcast regularly, we discuss industry trends, out-of-the-box ideas, or topics that get you thinking. Today's topic is the Cures Act.
1: So the Cures Act is a, a final rule that requires that certification and health information develop, updated, and provide their customers with essentially electronic interface or electronic aspect of killing. Ke- collecting their information um it's also known as a certified certified api technology so fiat i know this is a hot one for you guys you're all trying to figure it out um, and go from there so we would love to get your idea and for those joining us we will be sending a link to a um uh on the podcast for everybody to be able to grab some additional information that might not be in the mid cycle stream and want to learn more.
2: Um, you know, the 21st Century Cures Act, as it's called, has has had a phased approach um, coming into the industry. And so part of it is about this machine readable format. Um, but if you take a couple of steps back from that, it's kind of the um, ongoing march from HIPAA way back when in 1996 to where we are now. And and it's a very fundamental shift in the space of we want to be able to put information, correct information, in the hands of their the patient as quickly as possible to make the most informed decisions that they can make about their health care, right? So where this kind of started was um, through a lot of patient portals, right? So a lot of organizations have implemented technology where patients can get their information or can monitor their medical record in, in some capacity um, online that, up until the Cures Act, was kind of governed by what did the organization themselves want to share with the patients? Um, What did they feel like was important to them? And, And sometimes really just the political structure within their organization of whether or not a physician was like, hey, I'm okay with them reading all of my notes. Now, from an HIM perspective, we always would say when we were talking about portal implementation, look, patients can walk into the medical record department and ask us for this information and we're going to give it to them. So if you think that they don't see what you're writing about them, they do. And and they're entitled to that. But that whole process of having to come in or request it, um, kind of that pull technology versus push technology, um, kind of lulled us into the sense of, you know only really the patients who really want their information are going to do that. But with portals, and as we started to... Dig into the 21st Century uh, Cures Act. The first portion of it was you have to put out X number of data segments. You know, these specific items have to be available to a patient. As quickly as possible or within a certain timeline and you cannot block so it, the cures act is often also talked about as information blocking um, which is basically saying hey you're not giving the patient the information in a timely way so it started with one um, set of data a version of a, a specific data set that was mandated as part of the act and then expanded to here's more things <laughs> that you need to be able to send out and and so it became it went from kind of organization, you can pick what you want to give to your patients to, hey, here's an initial set of things you really should give to your patients, but you can also make some decisions about what's turned on and what's turned off and what you restrict to, hey, here's the expanded set of what you need to give. And if you're not giving it to them, you need to have a specific reason. And here are the reasons you have not to provide it. Then the next part of this wonderfully complex uh, act is the machine readable format right so they're they're pushing on developers they're pushing on organizations to say just because you use this x software and this organization uses this x software for the patient they just want something that's machine readable for them to put it together it shouldn't be their issue that one of their providers is on this system and one of their providers is on that system and they can't pull their information together and so it came down to, hey, we need to have a uniform definition or a uniform set of information that can be kicked out, and they call it in machine-readable format. Um, that a patient can have, that a patient can want. And you know, the the theory is that, okay, if you, if I give you a flash drive with this on, or I send you your information in a secure way, you could load it into something, and be able to have it, right? To be able to have the information and, and consolidate it. Um, I'm a little skeptical of that latter part. You know, so organizations are really working very hard to say, okay, in the subset of what we need to provide, there are a whole bunch of definitions about what we need to provide to a patient in terms of what is their health information, right? And and that all of that kind of started with the definition in HIPAA, surprisingly enough, um, with what's called a designated record set. And designated record set was sort of this definition of what is the information that pertains to the patient's care that's relevant to them. And it's continued to be expanded in all of these definitions. And the Cures Act really focuses on what portion of your information is captured electronically, right? So there's the big definition. And, and believe it or not, there are still hospitals that have paper. I, you know, I I remember coming out of school well over 20 years ago, thinking that, oh my gosh, I'm never gonna have to work in a paper file room. Um, and I, I'm gonna tell you right now, that was not my experience. And you still can walk into a hospital and they can still have a paper file room. Um, much less frequent, but the Cures Act is really tied to that definition of what do you capture electronically? And then it's working with your, with your um, IT vendor to say, Okay, let's let's dig into the background of this system and tell me field by field, which there are, you know, millions and millions of fields in an electronic record system, as you guys know from implementing them, what is something that is electronic that we would provide to a patient that we should provide to a patient. some of those are very easy answers. Some of them are very complicated answers because this is data that's part of operations, but it's not really tied to the patient's care. It's tied to the operations of the, of, the medical, of a medical center or of a health system. Um, and, and so that's really hard to unwind because every organization can implement even a standardized technology in a different way right everybody kind of puts their own spin on it their own flavor on it and and it's not standardized that this is this in this system and this is that in the system i think the closest thing that my bad example would be an order right so we all kind of think of an order the same way but orders can be formatted very very different depending on what your implementation is right so to say something easy like hey in this electronic feed that you need to provide to a patient you need to provide orders okay, do I need to, do I need to provide the order? Do I need to provide the note of who signed off on it? Do I need to provide, hey, it got changed in midstream? Do I need to provide that it got canceled? Um, You know, there, there are all sorts of those nuances of pieces of information that are very hard to tease out.
0: I remember when I first learned about APIs, and I was like, wow, this is a really cool technology. I maybe feed information in. Maybe it's just my name and my social security, and information gets passed back. And you're talking about that there's maybe a standardization of this technology. I could think that there maybe are some examples where it breaks down. So, for example, behavioral health information, like if, or if it's a behavioral health patient, we may not want to pass that information. Um, maybe put some guardrails in place. And you alluded to earlier that there maybe are a list of reasons why I wouldn't share that information have you found when like working through this on your end putting these apis in place or the standardization in place that like vendors are helping walk you through these things or that you're getting good help and assistance elsewhere when taking the steps to put this in place or has this really been like a, i need to do the like my due diligence to make sure this is all working and there has been a lot of lessons learned along the way
2: Um, You know, I think you see the larger communities of some of these legacy vendors, of these EMI vendors, trying to come together and leverage the collective knowledge. You know, where did you land on this? Where did you land on that? Um, But I will tell you that the vast majority of the EMR vendors or legacy vendors that we have worked with, you know, will say, we'll provide you with all the data elements, your call. We're not going to tell you that this should be in or be out because... They don't want to be in that mitigation space of somebody saying, well, well, so and so, you know, Daniel told me I didn't need to include my orders in my electronic data submission and and then them kind of getting pulled into it. So there's a lot of, hey, we're going to tell you what's there. But this was an organizational decision that you need to dictate on your own.
1: It is a Hema. Coming together at all to say, hey, this is how we're interpreting this and then going to be working with like the big dog vendors like an Epic or, you know, Cerner type platform to say, okay, here's what are those data elements you all need to come together to start talking and being able to pull into a single or are they kind of more, let's see what the vendors come up with and the organizations come up with and then we'll provide guidance after the fact.
2: Um, I think they're trying to provide guidance, not in you should include this element and you should include that element, but they they really are trying to compare the variety of data sets that are out there and saying you really do need to have a conversation about this, or here's the definition of a social determinant of health or, or marital status in this particular data set, this is how it's defined, but hey, Over here, it's defined differently. So you organization, you know, you probably should share marital status. It should be part of your record. But you need to make a determination about which data set you're going to use. And depending on what state you live in, that can be highly regulated, right? So California is very highly regulated in terms of some of the data elements that you have to collect.
1: We might have lost the... Well, everybody, we are taking a quick little break and we will be right back. Fine Medical serves a growing base of more than 800 active hospitals and health systems nationwide. Their best practices are hardwired through technology solutions proven to help hospitals achieve sustainable top performance. Their well-published results include improving financial performance, physician and staff alignment, patient experience, compliance, and patient safety and quality measures. Learn more at findmedical.com. That's V-Y-N-E medical.com. And we're back from the break, uh, and we have Thea rejoining us. We have connectivity. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you have to love that connectivity piece, right? Computers are wonderful right up until you're not connected anymore. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think AHIMA is trying to uh, provide guidance along with other players in the market, other players. Other, uh, you know, best practice organizations or other kind of niche organizations, associations, to say, hey, here's the field. (laughs) Here are some things that you probably should think about. You know, this one might be a clean answer, the answer is yes, but here's some of the complexity if you're looking at other data sets. You know, different states, like uh, like I said, um, have different rules associated with that. And it, it, it you know, I, I, kind of feel bad for like the epics and the Cerner's and, and the meditechs having to operate in all those different States. And, you know, you have people coming back to you saying, well, this isn't how it's defined in our state, right? Now, now you've just opened in a whole another can of worms. Um, but really those organizations that are trying to say here, here are all put the potential things you need to think about when you're trying to define marital status. Um, it, it it It's hard to bring it all together. And yet the, it really still comes down to a lot of the organization making the decision unless it's mandated by federal or state law.
0: Do you find that the federal or the state is taking the lead more on that as far? I mean, in California, I know that Cal- they're probably the ones that are taking the lead there. They're always the ones taking the lead and setting the standard. Um, but maybe to ask this a little bit differently, where do you see the government going with this, or do you see them taking a more active hand in the coming? Years ahead on this topic?
2: I, I think it really comes down to what are the lessons that we learn coming out of COVID and the mass collection of data and what we do with it, right? So, health equity. Um, access to care. Um, all of those pieces are are really actively being assessed, right? And and we know there's dichotomy. We know that there's difference depending on where you live, what kind of care you have access to. I think the government, maybe more on the federal side, is going to say, how do we level this playing field? I mean, that what is, where are their information deserts? Where are their care deserts?
1: Hey, everyone. I think we lost Thea again, which we will, uh, Go from there, but while we wait for her connectivity to rejoin, um, a couple Doing important. This eight. Oh, oh, pop oh, and, and she's out. back! Keep I know. Going. <laughs> I, I keep talking
2: to myself. You know, I this is really fun. Um, you know, I think it, it it really depends on what the need is in that specific area, right? Whether it's the state, whether you happen to be one of those folks who are in those care deserts or in that data desert. Um, versus what is some of the data that's being collected. Um, I have the fortune, misfortune of practicing a lot in a state that very quickly trails behind the federal stuff. Um, In this last implementation, um, we implemented the last portion of the Cures Act here recently in the top of October. And like two days later, the state issued some additional guidance (laughs) and some additional restrictions that we needed to comply with. And we were kind of like, wait a minute, can we... Can we kind of uh, be in a holding pattern so that we can get all of this done? And, and it's particularly challenging to stay up on all of that. Um, I think, again, another space where there's pretty a pretty huge challenge is depending on the size of your organization, it'll depend on the amount of resources you have available to dedicate to this. Um, I feel very fortunate. I work for a very large organization. We have resources. Not that we aren't all trying to be more financially responsible. We absolutely are. But a small rural healthcare facility doesn't you know, everybody still needs to read the same regulation and it still takes the same amount of time. If you're doing five jobs instead of one job dedicated to following the legislation, you're going to run out of time at some point.
1: Yeah, which brings it to the point, right, like they believe that real world testing should be taking place in 2023. So that's the plan that's been tied out there. With a future publication coming in December of this year, it looks like out on CMS's site. So it will be interesting to see what that phased approach is. And then are they going to give any leeway for those smaller organizations and those critical access rural health, you know, um, locations as well. So.
2: And I don't want to say that it's only rural health organizations that have a struggle with this. I mean, there's a ton of advocacy going on in talking to different organizations about how are you dealing with this? How are you dealing with the challenges of this change? What are you hearing from patients? Right. So, um, you know, we all we all had some concern way back when when we were pushing things to the patient portal that all of a sudden every single patient was going to be calling us to change the records because they didn't like that they were called a middle-aged woman, um, <laughs> maybe more than an obese woman probably would have gotten me going. <laughs> but, um, you know, that people didn't like some of that phrasing and that we were going to be inundated with a whole bunch of record requests it or changes to the records. We didn't see that happen in particular where I practice. Um, we do see them, but they're not, it's not like they, there was a huge influx. But we are seeing different conversations going on amongst patients where they're saying we have some patients saying, I don't want you to send me my test results. I want to wait till the doctor calls me and that's when I want to see him. So quit sending me my test results until my doctor talks to me. Okay, that's one option. I'm kind of one of those patients of, hey, get my information out to the portal. I can read it. I want to read it as soon as I can. And then we have other patients who are approaching us saying, hey, I see a provider here and I see a provider there, but I only have half of their notes in my system. Why is that? I want all of my notes in your system. Um, And so it's kind of hard to balance that, that need based on the public demand. And there's no one broad brush. So how do you have that flexibility to meet all of those needs?
1: Right. So what are your final thoughts for us on this topic, Thea?
2: Um, you know, I, I think the overall mission and the overall vision of what we're trying to accomplish, which is helping people have the information that helps them make the best care decisions. You know, having pe- having the information in people's hands to be able to impact their health and their health care decisions um, is the ultimate goal. Um, and, you know, we continue to bounce down the path of trying to define what is the best way to do that? and and there are lots of people with really great ideas um, and I, I do sometimes feel like we're we're either using the the shotgun approach where we try and get everything in it or we're being so very narrow that we don't understand um, what what might be a complication in it. So yeah. I think it's a work in progress like it always is um anything that's legislated in this way is always going to have unintended consequences right you, you just can't think through all of those things and it takes time to implement um you know government regulations definitely drive a lot of the innovation and and pushing people down the the path of where we need to get um but there there's still going to be some missteps and there's still going to be some struggles and and we have to continue to partner with not only our providers but in the technology space of how are we going to do this and then we need to understand how in the world are we going to educate patients in our communities about how to use this information that's in their best interest
1: perfect daniel any final thoughts
0: i thought it was really interesting to, to hear about just i mean we, we see a lot of consolidation in healthcare And then uh, especially like on the hospital side and then thinking about how are these smaller hospitals dealing with all this new regulation, maybe a future podcast topic, but uh, just really appreciate hearing about that and
1: just where the space is going. Well, this wraps our segment of the debate and normally we would do the Wilshire lab. However, Um, this episode plus episode eight, our special guest. Um, So we've opted to postpone doing uh, the Wilshire Lab until a future episode.
0: One of my special things that I did during COVID was get my HIM certification. And so this episode really prompted me to uh, maybe pick that back up and get a little bit more experience. But thank you, Thea, for joining us. Um, How could folks reach out to you if they have questions or want to connect?
2: Absolutely. Um, I am probably the easiest to find on LinkedIn. Uh, so Thea Campbell, and I actually have another last name, which is Stauffenecker. So if you see Thea Campbell, you'll find me, you'll see a, a, another last name that's really long and hard to spell and pronounce. Um, the other way is definitely to reach out to me via email, which is Thea, T-H-E-A dot Campbell, just like the soup. Um, at CSHS.org and would happily, uh, continue the debate and, and love to have folks share their, their stories and their experiences of how they're trying to get to this, because there's always kind of those interesting nuances that are an awful lot of fun that you're like, Oh, I never thought of that.
1: Well, that is it for us today, Daniel and Thea. Um, thank you for joining and, um, listen to future episodes. That's it, everybody. Bye-bye. If you like today's episode, continue to join Wilshire Wednesdays. You can follow us on LinkedIn or find us on Twitter at Evan underscore Wilshire. Daniel can be found at Daniel underscore TWG. The Wilshire group is at TWG Health. For us on Facebook at the Wilshire Group or on our Instagram at Wilshire IT RevCast.
0: Remember, if you prefer to watch, come check us out on YouTube at the Wilshire IT RevCast YouTube channel.
1: If you have an inquiry, want to share your thoughts, or get additional information on a topic, email us at the Wilshire Podcast at thewilshiregroup.net.
0: The best way for you to support this podcast is to rate, review, and subscribe. We'll see you next time.
1: Bye bye. The Wilshire IT Revcast is hosted, produced, and engineered by Evan Martin and Daniel Bianchini. It is executive produced by Gretchen Case, Hank Smither, and Spencer Thielman. The Wilshire Group. Experience you can trust. Results you can count on.